Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Packy McCormick, founder of the not boring bi-weekly newsletter that now has over 100,000 subscribers and covers tech, strategy, finance, venture capital, and economics. In 2021, Packy also launched the Not Boring Fund, which closed at just under $10 million and has already invested in over 50 companies. Packy is also a Web3 advisor for Andreessen Horowitz and previously worked at Breather and Merrill Lynch. In my conversation with the ever insightful Packy, we cover everything from the changing guard of venture, including the rise of solo capitalists, why content creation and venture investing are so symbiotic, and what he's most excited about in the world of technology. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high-limit corporate credit card and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily, so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. This week of Venture Unlock is brought to you by Passer. Raising a fund is hard enough without the additional friction of the complex subscription agreement process that makes it so difficult for investors to easily sign up. Enter Password, which automates the fund closing process. It takes any subscription agreement and builds a fully digital custom workflow where your investors only see the questions that matter to them. It's so simple that investors can now sign up for private funds in less than five minutes. Pastor also makes it easy for fund managers and legal counsel to manage and track the entire process. To move into the next generation of digital fund closing, head over to pastor.com forward slash Samir to learn more. Packy, it's so great to have you on the show. So great to be here. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. So before we get into like what you're doing right now, this newsletter that you've wrote is now epic. You, I think you have close to 100,000 subscribers and before this, you know, you talked about the time and effort that goes behind every post. But tell us, why did you start this in the first place? Before I became a full-time newsletter writer, I was at a company called Breather. We had gone through a leadership change. We brought in a new management team. And I remember one meeting that we were sitting in, uh, in an exec meeting, I said the word enumerate, which, you know, like 50-50 on whether people know it in hindsight, because I've told this story before. And people are like, yeah, I actually don't know what that means. But not only did everyone in the room look at me with blank stares, they were like, the hell are you talking about using big words? And I was like, you know what? I need to do something to like exercise my brain here or I think I'm going to go crazy. So I started, I took uh, David Perel's Rite of Passage course. I just, you know, on a whim decided to kind of start writing a, a newsletter on the side that was just really like a link roundup of the things that, that I'd been reading over the week. I have a pretty bad memory. And so it was just a good way at the very least to like kind of remember and synthesize what I had been reading. Uh, and then, you know, left Breather at the end of 2019. And and when COVID hit, I was in the middle of trying to start another in-person based thing. Breather was kind of a real estate company uh, and COVID hit. So all I had really kind of asset wise, I'd already quit my job was this newsletter on the side with 400 subscribers. So, you know, talked to my wife, begged and pleaded and asked for three months to see if, if I went full time on this, if we weren't doing anything anyway, she had just found out that we were, that we were pregnant. Uh, all of, all of that fun stuff kind of happening in one spot, but I was like, please just give me three months. And it started, you know, growing pretty well, fairly early. Uh, and so even though I wasn't monetizing it at that point, it, it allowed me to kind of keep buying time on the monetization side to see if this could actually become a thing. Yeah, and it has grown tremendously. And it's it's very clear that you have thoughts and views on a, a whole host of topics, both on the venture and uh, from a technology perspective. Was the newsletter intended to be a full-time thing or was it a augmentation of what you really wanted to do? And you're sort of going to figure out what do I want to do past this because it did lead to now you raising a fund, which I know closed at nine point nine million, and you know sometimes people start with news newsletters, build a brand, use that as a stepping stone to starting a fund. Did you have that as part of your thought process, or is this all serendipitous? 
all serendipitous. I mean, I, I think probably the one thing that I knew going into kind of writing the newsletter full time for a few months was that it was going to increase kind of optionality and, and serendipity. And so that part was intentional, but I had no idea. Like if you had asked me kind of then, I would have probably put the chance that I'd become a full-time newsletter writer at 5% and thought that like maybe somebody reading one of the things that I wrote who worked at a company that I'd want to work for uh, would read it and think that it was smart and then hopefully give me a job that I otherwise like couldn't get by just uh, applying or networking. That was probably the most likely path. The fund was a total accident. Uh, I had a friend who was starting a company that was kind of at the intersection of real estate and software. He needed help explaining to investors why it wasn't just a real estate company. So he asked me to write that up at the same time they were raising an SPV with a friend of mine. So we sent the demand there and it worked. And so I started doing SPVs because of that. Uh, and started writing about companies and then doing kind of the SPV uh, concurrently in a compliant way, SEC. It was, you know, it was all like, I, there are certain certain things that I could say in the piece and couldn't say in the piece and, and all of that. But that worked really well until there were some deals where, you know, I talked to a founder and I was like, great, okay, cool. I'm in for, I think, 150,000. We'll see what the demand is like. And I'll let you know in three weeks and like the closing will be two weeks after that once all the wires have hit. And it was just too slow a process to move the speed that venture is moving at right now. And so that's why in, in April decided to raise a fund. So raised, you know, went out to try to raise five to seven, uh, ended up raising, as you said, 9.9 .9, uh, and actually just finished deploying that. So what is the uh, the thought that you have in terms of managing a fund? Because there's one aspect, which is, you know, you can invest in all these companies with captive capital, where if a founder comes to you that you like, you have money that is there to be able to allocate. On the other hand, running a venture firm, especially if you're raising fund after fund after fund and managing all these companies, it can be a full-time job on top of what you're already doing in writing. How do you want to construct this? Is this a firm or are you looking at this as it's a great way to capitalize on companies within this swim lane of $10 million in smaller funds? The way that I'm thinking about it, like I said, it wasn't planned. It does seem now like kind of looking back at it and people have said this, that a venture fund is a really good way to monetize an audience. I haven't really been thinking about it as a monetization thing at all. I think that feels more like evil than what I'm going for, like more conniving even than what I'm going for with this. It was really like, I'm writing about all these companies. I was an operator for a lot of years before this. Like I want to have skin in the game here. I don't just want to be one of the guys who sits on the sideline and just like writes about these things. I want to write about these things. And then first with the SPVs kind of give the community a chance to uh, invest in the companies that I'm writing about and, and put my own skin in the game there as well. Uh, and then with the fund kind of, kind of same thing. So it gives me the, the chance to write, but then jump in and, and kind of work with the companies and, and help them and, and all of that. It is a lot of, I'm working, you know, seven days a week, writing and investing are, they require completely opposite schedules, right? Like writing the dream scenario would be if I were out in the woods and there's nobody around and I had big chunks of time all day. And investing is like a founder has 30 minutes right now and the round is closing tomorrow. So hop on the phone and sorry about your writing block. And so they are, you know, it ends up being that I end up doing most of my writing on the weekends when I can kind of get those open chunks. But I'm having a blast doing both of the things, and I think they work really well together. So as long as I can sustain it, I will continue to do both at the same time and probably just bring on maybe one or two people over time to, to help manage it. What have you found is some of the most complementary elements of writing and investing? Of course, over the last several years, we've seen the market go from very monolith to now so many different archetypes, right? You have the solo GPs, you have rolling funds, you have multi-stage funds. We'll get to your model in a second, because I think you have elements of a lot of those different things. And we've seen people build brand through content creation, uh, whether it's blogs, podcasts, things like that. Oftentimes, you know, one of the questions LPs ask is, how are these things, one, complementary? How do you manage your time? And so as you think about those two vectors, you know, how do you manage your time between investing and writing? And then second, what are some of the things that are complementary? about writing that really help you as an investor? Yeah, so I just I just wrote a uh, a piece on kind of the the fund one. I have decided to open source as much of this as possible. So when I raised the fund, I shared, you know, a, a version of the memo without 
company details that I used to raise the fund. I talked about the process, uh, and then I shared my kind of Q, uh, Q2 LP update. Recently, I shared my Q3 LP update, and a lot of it was about this concept of how the two things fit together and how I manage my time. And so I think it really is all about trade-offs. The advantages that I get from writing the newsletter and having that really be the primary thing are, to your point, deal flow. I, I can kind of write about an industry that I'm interested in or even once, and I'll probably do this more often, I just wrote about a company because I wanted to invest in that company and then was able to get into the deal. So it certainly helps on, on the deal flow side. And then it helps in winning deals as well, either kind of directly where I can say like, look, if we do this, I'll write a piece about the company at some point in the future when it's when it's most strategic. More and more though, it's it's just kind of been a lot of founders are in the not boring kind of audience and community and they're familiar with the way that I think and the type of person that I, I I can't hide after writing for a year and a half at some point, like the true me comes out and either it saves me time because they don't want to talk to me because they don't like the way that I think, or, uh, you know, it's helped to be able to get into, to deal. So deal flow and winning deals and then helping companies, uh, kind of with the audience that I've built is, is where it's been the most helpful. The trade-offs are like, I frankly, and apologies to all the LPs in the audience, like I, I'm doing less diligence than probably a comparable investor would. I'm, I'm spending a lot more time, you know, looking for reasons to invest in companies than reasons not to invest in companies. That also comes with trade-offs. I, I take way fewer first meetings than I would otherwise. Like I'm, I'm pretty much just taking first meetings if I think that there's a chance that I'd want to invest in the company. So I probably meet with fewer than 20% of the companies that, that get sent to me. And so there's just different pieces in the stack where I need to to trade off. And I think the most unique thing about the fund is the fact that we have this newsletter. And so I need to protect time for that and then make decisions downstream of that uh, to, to kind of protect that time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the old sort of viewpoint from a venture investing standpoint is, you know, you invest in 20 to 25 deals, you see like five to 700 deals, you see this big funnel, and then the funnel gets smaller and smaller. And it's based on picking and there's this counterintuitive, I know you wrote about this, where Angelus put out a report that said, you know, at Seed, you should invest really in every credible company and build the biggest portfolio as possible. Do you ascribe to that? And how do you think about that particular finding, which for most people would be fairly counterintuitive? It makes sense. There's, a, I think, a, a broader theme that I write about often, which is that People just aren't good at, at understanding kind of exponential growth and, and compounding and power laws and all of those types of things. But when you realize that, you know, a 5,000x, if you catch one of those, that makes up for and then some all of the mistakes that you would have made in a fund otherwise. You know, even if I make 100 investments out of the fund, one is a 5,000x. That returns the funds many, 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 many more times than an LP's wildest dreams. And so the, the job is to catch as many of those as you can. I think the limiting factor is actually to be able to catch as many of those as you can and invest in as many of those as you can, but then also actually be there for the company and actually support them such that you can continue to invest in future rounds. And so I think that's probably where the trade-off is is more, where I'm also investing in companies that I think, you know, at some point I'll be able to, if not, you know, like dive in and spend a week with the team going through their org chart, there will be a few strategic spots in their life when I can really help kind of bend the trajectory of the company. And so looking for companies where that's that's the case. And how do you think about that? Because you're right. If you have, let's say, and I don't, I don't know how many portfolio companies in in Fund One, but let's say it's between seventy and hundred portfolio companies. You're writing average checks that are hundred to two hundred thousand dollars per company, and you're a small piece of the cap table. So you know, you look at this metric of value add versus dollars invested, and I would suspect that. A founder is not going to ex expect the same level of time as somebody that writes a $2 million check in their $3 million seed round. But at the same time, when founders do look for money and you know small investors, especially in today's market, they are looking for some edge that somebody can bring them no matter how small they are on the cap table. We went through the same thing. How do you view it? Because you do have this podium, which is this newsletter that can actually add a ton of value for these companies. How do you actually manage this at scale? Because there are so many portfolio companies. With the SPVs, the original kind of idea was one investment, one write-up on the company. 
I've had to drop that. So, you know, I'm not writing about every company that I invest in. I would never sleep and they would all be bad and everybody would discredit every one of them. So I think it's more, you know, first there are multiple kind of channels that I have now. So I have a podcast where I interview the founders in the portfolio. It's small, but it kind of helps them, you know, tell the story publicly and can link to it in the newsletter when the time is right, like when a company is thinking about fundraising or like really kind of has early momentum that they want to supercharge, I can write, you know, a a post on the company. Then, uh, I'm super active on, on Twitter, uh, and have built up a, a following there. So, you know, there's a company in the portfolio that pretty much my main, you know, main value add and job there is that whenever they send a dumb tweet, they're like, all right, go, go like, and respond to this tweet. There's some areas where like, I will spend multiple hours with the founder. One of my portfolio companies, uh, I just introduced my best friend in the entire world from high school and college because he'd be absolutely perfect to run the revenue side of that business and spent a lot of time with that company. So there are some, particularly I think on the earlier side where I can come in and actually kind of help like a normal investor would. And then there are some where you know, there are some really lightweight ways to kind of add value along the way before dropping that big, you know, write up hammer. Yeah. So, I mean, there are elements of just being able to do a one-to-many approach where you can help somebody in, in a way that does scale for you from a, from a time perspective. What have you found as the toughest thing? Because you did mention, and I do think I would ascribe to the angelist view that if you can find this filter where you see a big percentage of really credible deals, that you are probably going to do fairly well because there is going to be an outlier, especially in today's world where the upper bound outcomes are just so much bigger than they have ever been. NYC is a great example of this. SV Angel, 500 startups have all shown that portfolio approach can work really, really well when you have a filter or top of the funnel that really makes a ton of sense from a quality standpoint. I would believe that the counter to having a big brand, whether it's on Twitter or whether it's through your blog is that you have a lot of top of funnel coming directly to you. And so how do you manage that top of funnel to ensure that you're seeing the companies that you want to see, but you're also not missing out on those, let's call it non-obvious, non-consensus founders or companies that might be those large outliers in the future? There's one is is a great example because I ended up investing, but uh, Sky Mavis, which is a company behind Axie Infinity, the one of the founders reached out in February when they were thinking about raising a round that was much, much, much cheaper than the round that I invested in. And we exchanged a couple of things. And then like, I just kind of dropped the ball on, on that conversation, right? Like I was interested in it. I'd heard about it, but I'm one person and I'm not a systems person either. So it's not like I have some very well triaged inbox or particularly Twitter DM inbox or any of that. So Missed out on, I think, probably what would have been at least a 10x in a few months because I just kind of dropped the ball on that conversation. And I'm sure there are 50 of those you know, somewhere somewhere in my inbox, which is not good. Uh, so that's probably you know the next phase of this. I'll at least have you know high, higher an EA and potentially kind of a, more of a chief of staff role to help make sure that I'm, I'm not missing things. The thing that I think works well is one, I've built up, I think, a, a pretty good tight network of people who send each other deals. And so I'm definitely looking at kind of anything that comes from that group. And that could be certainly other solo capitalists. And that's probably the the best source of deals. You know, I have a bunch of uh, VCs who are LPs in the fund or who I've just kind of gotten to know through this whole process. So those are always good sources of deals. I know that's that that's not like finding the hidden gem at pre-seed. Like maybe it is a little bit more consensus there. On the non-consensus side, I think it really is kind of writing about weird things that I'm interested in that maybe other people aren't interested in yet. And then I have already kind of done the diligence and have a filter applied so that if I see something that comes in after that, that is just coming in because I wrote about that particular topic, then I've gotten, uh, you know, I've thought about that space a little bit more. So I'm prepared when, when those come in, like, I wish that, that web three and, uh, and the metaverse and all of that had not gotten so hot so quickly. But when I was writing about that in January, I'd say it's kind of non-consensus. And so I saw a bunch of things, uh, there that, uh, I was able to invest in before they became now, you know, consensus. And I'm still very much investing in that, in that space, but that got consensus and hot very, very quickly. When you are researching and writing about these things that in many cases haven't really taken off and are a little bit esoteric and idiosyncratic in nature. And you mentioned Web3 and Metaverse, which of course has gone now mainstream. 
I presume you're also looking at sub-themes and constantly looking for things where you're peering around the corner and figuring out like, hey, this is super interesting. Not many people are thinking about it yet, but I think it's going to go somewhere. Can you maybe provide a sense of outside of things that now are obvious like Web3, what else is getting you excited? So I've spent a lot of my time recently. I, you know, I think Web3 implies that this is kind of the next phase. And so instead of just you know, looking for other areas that are maybe non-consensus, I'm leaning in more on the Web3 side, but thinking about a bunch of different use cases within that. So doing something that is you know, applying kind of a Web3 model to real estate, which has been one of these holy grail things that people have tried to do. I think they have a really smart way of doing it. And so because I came from real estate before and have spent a lot of time in Web3, like this one actually makes a ton of sense to me. I'm looking at a bunch of things that are you know, how do you onboard the next billion users into crypto? So I've done less on kind of the straight decentralized finance or DeFi side and more on you know, how can you use Web3 mechanics in something that will actually appeal to uh, a broader segment of the population. There's another company uh, that I invested in recently that just like just makes a ton of sense. It's a company called Meow, and essentially what they're doing is BlockFi for corporate treasuries, and you can get around a lot of the regulatory stuff when you're working with corporate treasuries because they're accredited or qualified institutions. So it's not like offering uh, crypto products to individuals. And so I think that like that just it's something that because I wrote about BlockFi, I knew the amazing things that BlockFi is doing. I knew the challenges that they were facing when I met a company that was doing the same thing for corporate treasury and had a real focus on compliance. They always just prepared to do kind of that one where maybe other people who hadn't spent time on those specific things might not have been, you know, ready. What's interesting about that is you're really using your learnings from your research to inform more theme-based investing and finding things that perhaps are non-obvious in some vector, but at the same time, a lot of your deals invariably are going to have a lot of heat on them, a lot of competition. And you've said that you think commoditized firms that have no differentiated edge are really going to struggle in this new world ahead of us. Tell us what you mean by commoditized, and how do you think firms should think about decommoditizing themselves when they're really in the business of selling capital? The approach that I took to this was Ben Thompson wrote this great piece about what's happening in kind of media and publishing and how there's what he calls the smiling curve, where on the one side you have the big aggregators like Facebook and Google and maybe like a New York Times who survive. You have a bunch of kind of individual people like me writing on a sub stack who survive because our cost structures are just so much lower. And so you could survive on practically zero revenue. And in the middle, you have a bunch of people who are built for a world in which having a big ad sales team makes sense, in which you you know need to cover everything that's going on in the world because people don't have the internet and so they can't find that information anywhere else. And so you, you've just built an organization that's not right for the current time and isn't as good as kind of the biggest ones and isn't as nimble as the smallest ones. And I think something very, very similar is happening in venture where on you know the one side you have huge, well-resourced funds that bring a ton of value to the table. Like the Andreessen's, Thrives, Tigers, all of those who each have a really differentiated approach to the what they can bring to the table, and they just have enough money to be able to like go out and, and win deals. So you have that side. On the small side, you know, someone like me, I don't need to lead a deal. I think that's probably the biggest thing. So the, the cost structure equivalent is probably that just that I don't need to lead a deal. There are good, very small funds, I'd say, that are like, you know, two to four people don't have a tremendously big cost structure, can really put all of their resources into things that they're really, really good at and win specific deals. Uh, you know, on the crypto side, I think that, you know, Variant is doing an amazing job. They just announced, you know, $110 million fund, joined forces uh, with Jesse Walden and Spencer Noon and Lee Jin. So it's this like very kind of like good size boutique fund that can get in early, really understand the space and add a ton of value. I think you see this in fintech where they're bigger funds, but like a QED and a Ribbit who are just like, we are very, very good at this one specific thing. But if you're just trying to kind of compete to lead deals and nobody knows who you are and you're not really, really good at one particular thing, 
it's just really tough to win against these big funds who might even have a different, you know, return profile where, you know, if you're, if you're trying to lead some of the very best deals as one of these funds in the middle, because you know that you're not going to be able to lead a lot of the really good deals, you need more returns from the ones that you win. Whereas if you're competing against a tiger, they're going to be in a ton of good deals and they're a hedge fund. So they don't need the same kind of returns and their investors don't expect the same kind of returns. They'd actually rather just turn the fund more and more and more and more. And so it's just like you're competing with somebody who has a totally different cost structure, cost basis than you do and and different LP expectations who can pay more and you can't afford to compete. And so it's just a really tough place to be. I would imagine from a lot of those funds in the middle, people are going to do better splitting off and starting their own things and trying to be a part of a round as opposed to staying lumped in this group of people who don't really have a strong kind of identity or a skill set, et cetera. It's such a fascinating topic. And you you brought up what I would say three parts of this market. Like if you look at venture capital and and let's call it now, venture capital is probably a term that's a little bit overused because it's hard to say Tiger Co. too, even, even Andreessen to a certain degree is pure venture capital because at the the top end, those multi-stage large funds, they have a lot of capital to deploy. The return profiles are largely different at that series C, series D level. And they take different approaches. Tiger has optimized on speed and price, and they don't make any assertions they're going to add more value to a company. They're just going to show up quicker, faster, and get a deal done. And Andreessen, of course, takes a very different approach, which is we have this huge universe of people that can help you with these different things. Plus, we bring speed and price. And they're very interesting. You have the people in the middle that historically have probably been around for a, a long time that don't have the brand and scale of some of the bigger fun- funds. And of course, on the left side of the barbell, you have the, the more niche seed stage firms. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the people in that, let's just call it Death Valley or maybe murky middle, that you are going to have some attrition and they move to likely the left side of the market and start their own firms that are smaller, more niche oriented. The tough thing is there's so many of the, these firms right now. And if you look at that left side, there's thousands of managers that are focusing on seed, maybe have their own twist. But what in your mind, what truly makes somebody non-commoditized? Because there are firms that are sector focused or region focused. But at the end of the day, are they going to be washed away because there's just so much capital chasing these deals and there's so many other people that are really good at investing at those stages. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really about sizing your fund to the amount of good opportunities that you think you can be able to get into and and the check size that you think you'll be able to get into those deals because, you know, a 100 million dollar fund that can get into that, that might be able to lead four really good deals over the course of a year is going to do a lot worse than a 10 million dollar fund that can lead four really good deals over the course of a year. So I think that's it. Once you get kind of on the high of, of your management fees and carry on a bigger fund, it's really, really hard to downsize all of that. And once you have a support system in place that is kind of based on those management, like all of that is really, really hard. But I think it's probably the best thing you could do is take a realistic look and say, like, actually, I do think that we have an advantage in this particular geography where even when those big funds are going to come in, we just know these founders better. And at the very least, we can co-lead this deal X, Y, and Z. But half the deals that we would have won before because no one was looking at this market are actually going away and going to those bigger funds. We probably should right size for that or, you know, rethink, rethink the strategy in some way, as opposed to just, you know, putting out one and a half, two X funds for the next couple of decades. What you just mentioned, it it strikes me as it's not just differentiation, but it's differentiation relative to the check sizes you're writing into these companies. Because if you look at your model and say, instead of raising 9.9 million, you raise $75 million and your average check size was 500,000 to a million, it would be very difficult to run the strategy and and the way you manage your time as you do with a $9.9 million fund. And so I think it's really finding that, again, you know, I've used it before, it's swim lane that really works for you and staying within that until the time you feel like your model, your non-commoditized model can then shift to, you know, a different part of the market, right? Totally. I'm thinking about that for fun too, definitely going a little bit bigger. And, you know, my plan was, let me just do $10 million funds, 
back to back to back to back, and and I'll write those same size checks. And I realized at the end of uh, end of fund one that I was more often able to get much bigger checks in than I was actually able to write out of the fund. And that could be, you know, my average check should have moved from a hundred to two hundred. And there are some later stage things because I do do kind of multi-stage. There are some later stage things where I'm artificially capping myself at 250K that I love and I'd love to just put 500K in. So that's what gave me the comfort to kind of go up in size was not me saying, let me raise a big fund and see if I can go deploy more, but that there were a bunch of really good opportunities to deploy more that I just couldn't take advantage of. And it's part of your learning journey that you realize that you can get bigger checks into these companies without adversely affecting your ability to get into the right type of deals. But that's hard to know going into a fund. You sort of realize, you know, how much you can do. One thing that, you know, and this reminds me of a conversation I had with Turner Novak, who was also on the show. And Turner, similar fund size. I think his was $9.99 million. One thing that was really interesting about the conversation was his portfolio construction wasn't just seed. Typically with small fund sizes, it's 100% seed, right? You get in at the early stages. And in his model, it was multi-stage investing at seed, series A, series B, and some growth stage. You've ascribed to something very similar and not just seed. Tell us a little bit about how you thought about portfolio construction and why you went with this third seed, a third early stage, and roughly a third growth stage. That's why I think that's what makes this whole thing so fun as a business itself is because you have to line up all of the things. Like if I were going out and raising from pensions and endowments and and kind of more institutional LPs, they'd very much want to bucket me as kind of probably an early stage investor in the small fund. They have their growth guys that they that they trust. But because I've been raising mostly from kind of individuals, family offices, not boring readers, the way that I view kind of the universe of investments that I should be getting into are things that are going to give them better returns than they could get in any other kind of asset class that they have easy access to and so maybe get in the in the private in the public markets and so i would much rather have a you know series b series c company that's on the right trajectory with a great team and all of that than most kind of uh, public market equities and so i'm happy to add kind of 20% of the fund into those and really with the goal that you know those are safer, but in air quotes I'm doing here, but safer kind of five to 10 X opportunities. Those are not going to be hundred X. I don't expect them to be hundred X. Maybe I get lucky and, and one is, but I expect that that 20% hopefully returns the fund one time by itself. The pre-seed kind of checks are, you know, there might be one of those just random thousand X's, but it might be on such a small check that it's, it will return the fund, but not meaningful, but it's a good way to get comfortable and familiar with companies earlier on in their life. And so for things that I'm really excited about or where I know the founder already, I'm willing to go uh, pre-seed. And then the vast majority is in that kind of sweet spot of seed series A, where I think that there is, you know, I'm trying to underwrite most of those to hundred X which I think people say underwrite and to try to sound serious about it. Like there's not a spreadsheet here where I'm underwriting it to hundred X, but is there a comp in the market of something in a similar category where it could get really big with, you know, with this team and do I think that they have the right approach and, and all of that, but really for that sweet spot, want that, want them to at least have a shot at hundred X. Do you think that something like this multi-stage small fund is something that we'll see more of? You, you look at people like Elad Gill, for example, who have, been able to lead massive rounds as a solo GP. And what we're finding is, you know, the market has become much more distributed in terms of who can lead rounds, who companies are looking to raise capital from. And it's gone away from bucketed and fragmented sort of universes to anybody can do anything, maybe not from the LP side and certainly the institutional side. I think they view it differently. Do you believe that we'll see more of this as the market becomes far more evolutionary from what we saw maybe even just two or three years ago? Yes. I mean, like the evolutionary, I think, is the right word here. And I was thinking as you're asking the question, just the word dynamic, that as things shift in one part, then other opportunities open up. So as Andreessen raises bigger and bigger funds and writes more checks, 
what they're providing is certainly still that kind of stamp of approval and the fact that you're getting an investment from Andreessen, but they're also providing all of these uh, these resources and like really a way to to help the company. And so what they're offering kind of shifts a little bit. That leaves room for an Elad Gill or a Josh Buckley or a Lockheed Groom or one of these kind of solo capitalists with a big fund to come in and say like, wow, it's an individual investor, doesn't write a lot of big lead checks. So if they're writing a big lead check here, they must really be into this deal. And there's a lot of signal that comes with having one of that very small group of people who uh, is kind of like a very meaningful commitment when they lead something big. And that will shift over time as well. They, they might raise bigger and bigger funds. Each one of those investments is less of a stamp of approval, and that leaves room for somebody else who can go kind of more boutique-y and, and small, and maybe that's within a particular vertical or not. And you know, So I, I think all of that uh, kind of is constantly shifting and moving and opening up opportunities for different people to come into different parts of kind of the curve and, and add value in different ways. So if I may, I want to take a slightly devil's advocate view just from the LP hat. The two things that people would say to the approach, especially institutional investors that are looking at investing and earning some rate of return that is true alpha and for funds that are smaller funds, it's usually three, five X plus is number one, you know, investing at the early stage versus the late stage, completely different muscles that you have to exercise spreadsheet investing versus betting on founder and, you know, we're kind of peering into the future. And the other thing is when you look at investing in that way, do you dilute yourself from a return perspective? Because, you know, at least historically, if you have a small fund writing small checks, it's better to get a larger piece of a smaller company and get those alpha returns. And so how do you think about maybe the devil advocate view of, is this the right way to go? And then I, I guess I'd add on the third, which is it's a lot of money for one person to manage. If you are doing a lot of late stage, especially with folks like Lockheed and Elad, do you lose diversity of thought in the decision-making when, when it's a solo GP? I think there's two totally different answers for me and for somebody who's actually leading those later stage things. Because for me, it's actually not you know spreadsheet investing when I do a later stage deal. I'm following people who are doing spreads, spreadsheet investing at those later stage deals. And I'm very comfortable following when I really love a company and I trust the lead has done all of the diligence that you need to do to, to do around there. So I, you know, as an example, a couple of examples, Ramp, when they just raised their round, I absolutely love that company, have written about that company. It's an expensive deal, but I, I think the world of them, I think they have a very clear path to at least a 10x from here. I will do that deal all day and I'm going to trust Founders Fund uh, kind of leading that, that that there's no huge skeletons that I've missed or something in the numbers that is just like a total, total red flag or an investment like scale that I did that was even even more expensive in a series E deal. But I think Neil at Green Oaks is one of the best investors in the whole game. And so if he's super bullish on this and, and willing to lead that round, obviously, you know, the fund has different goals than mine and, and all of that, but that's something that I'm, you know, I'm willing to trust his spreadsheet investing on that and his team spreadsheet investing on that. And I like the company and was able to write about them and like get very comfortable with, with everything there. And so those, you know, if you're saying, you know, three to five X is kind of the expectation for a small fund. And I think that those have a really good shot at being 10 X's then the expected value on that is actually higher than the expected value of, of the the kind of three to five X that a, a good uh, early stage fund would do. And so when I think that, you know, there's just a higher probability of a lower multiple later stage, I'm still willing to do that if I think that there is that kind of uh, upside opportunity left. And it's interesting because ultimately you could still provide alpha in a risk adjusted way because you do have some of the later stage bets that have very low likelihood of going to zero. And as you mentioned, if you're underwriting behind people that you know are truly doing underwriting and really being diligent and haven't actually relaxed their diligence standards, I think it, it makes a ton of sense. In today's world, I mean, one of the fears that a lot of us have is because deals are moving so fast, you can't really do the level of diligence that you once could, right? I mean, it's not six months, three months getting to know a founder. Oftentimes, you have to make a decision within three weeks. And we have seen even some late stage investors exercise what I would consider lax 
diligence relative to what we've seen before. And of course, we won't name names. And so do you think that part of your model is really thinking about those people where you know and trust their ability to make those late stage decisions with a lot of diligence behind them? In some cases, they have an asymmetric view because they've backed the company since the Series A or Series B. Is that sort of the model that you're you're employing? Yeah, I, I think that's largely right. I also think that the loose money at late stages concept for certain funds that we won't name is probably actually a little bit overblown. Uh, I think that they just like there's very much a prepared mind attitude in, in working with a lot of those later stage funds on companies that I've invested in in previous rounds. There's more kind of scrutiny uh, and selection than I would have expected kind of before uh, getting into this. You know, nobody wants to lose their their LP's money. I think probably what ends up happening and which isn't great for, you know, somebody who's just following it around is that if they're highly convicted on a company and a space and the team and the growth and all of that, they're actually just willing to pay more to get into deals. And so the return compresses. But I think that it's probably less true that they're just investing in a bunch of crap and seeing what sticks as opposed to just paying up in order to win things when they are very convicted. Yeah. And what they're underwriting too at the end of the day is, is a redefined upper bound outcome. We've seen this before in Discord and Canva, and there's a whole host of companies that it's not just the valuation, but it's the revenue that they've been able to drive in a very short amount of time. And the number of companies that have achieved 50 or even $100 million in revenue the speed at which they're able to get that is unlike anything we've ever seen. It's exactly right. And if you just play that, uh, this was one of, so I wrote a, a long piece when Ramp did what at the time seemed like a crazy expensive two-year-old company back-to-back -back rounds where they did one round with D1 at a $1.1 billion valuation and then turned right around uh, and Stripe invested at a 1.6 and just kind of did like played it out a little bit talked about the amount of revenue they've been able to generate in just two years and what that implies when you think about a company that is growing that fast and like where that company is versus a company with twice as much revenue in two years but the bigger company is growing 50 percent slower like the the smaller faster growing company just gets big so much faster and can get so much bigger that i think investors now are just Maybe prob what's what's happening is probably more they're just giving them more credit for the top part of that curve than they would have gotten before. But I think people have just gotten used to seeing that a lot of these lines that look really steep and crazy just keep going. And these companies get really big really fast. And so if we're trying to win this deal, let's just jump ahead 12 months and give them credit for the next 12 months of growth. The danger there is if there is something maybe they've tapped into, you know, I think probably e-commerce saw this in a pretty big way where there was a group of customers that are just kind of obvious buyers and you start out with low CAC because you're selling something to exactly the type of people who need it and things look really, really great. And you've got all the good buyers who are the people who would actually buy this product. And so CACs go up and Facebook just gets more expensive. And all, like, so those curves don't always kind of play out the way that they look early on. But I think people are pattern matching to in SaaS or in Web3 or in other things. When companies pick up momentum early, in a lot of cases, they've been able to kind of continue that momentum and just grow really, really, really quickly. And so something that looked very expensive right now looks pretty cheap in a year. We've seen companies like Facebook. I remember when they raised at a billion dollar valuation, people thought I was crazy. And of course, it, it peaked at a trillion dollars. And so it's a thousand X. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one would have ever believed that would be the case. And fundamentally, I, mean, I think from an investor standpoint, and we talked to a lot of families, we talked to a lot of institutional LPs. And it feels like today there's both greed and optimism as well as fear of what people believe to be an inevitable crash at some point, meaning that it's been 14 years, everything's been up and to the right. No one really knows what's going to happen. I, I don't think you can ascribe any level of certainty. There's too many variables. We may have an economic regression five years from now. It could be next year. It could be 15 years from now. If you are an investor right now, let's just say you put yourself in the role of a limited partner and you're looking across and you're starting to build a, a strategy around investing in, in venture capital, what are the main things that you would have as your considerations? What are you underwriting to? And then ultimately, where are you placing your capital? That is such a tough, a tough question, right? Because if it all goes to hell, it's all going to hell. 
the stock market is going to hell. Valuations are coming in. Like all, all of these things are probably happening right around the same time. So there's not a safe spot. And, and certainly staying in cash is not a safe move for the time being. I, I don't think there's any safe places in the market right now. I think that partially kind of informs why I've structured the fund the way that I have. Like hopefully, you know, if this keeps going for five, 10 years, all the early stage stuff, as long as it continues to grow and I pick the right companies and all of that, we'll have huge, huge, huge outcomes in the next five to 10 years. The later stage stuff will actually get to liquidity you know, sooner. And so there's less of a risk of everything imploding before there's a liquidity event there. And so it's probably just a little bit of kind of the stage diversification is, is how I'd be thinking about it. But I don't think that you know this is necessarily, as long as you are taking a, a diversified approach, necessarily much riskier than the public markets. Like I wrote a piece last year called Dreams All the Way Up about how you know you could value a company on a multiple of earnings or something like that. And, and certainly at some point that is the right way to do it. But that it felt like a lot of companies are just being valued on the probability that they get as big as the biggest companies either overall or the biggest companies in their particular space. And so you look at something like Apple, I think breaking the trillion dollar barrier is probably, it has a lot to do with everything that we're seeing now, because before then, like I was an Apple shareholder for a while and it was the most frustrating thing in the world because this incredibly innovative company was trading at these super low multiples, largely because like there was just a trillion, trillion dollar ceiling just hanging over its head and nobody had ever broken it. Once that broke through, everybody broke through the trillion dollar ceiling. Tesla just broke through the trillion dollar ceiling. And that means that you can start underwriting earlier companies with, to your point, just a higher kind of upper bound there. But that actually a lot of the early stage valuations hadn't caught up and hadn't grown as fast as a lot of the biggest companies in the public markets. The argument against that is there will never be another Facebook, another Amazon, another Microsoft, another Google. Like this is just a generational, uh, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity. And so of course those companies are getting much bigger. I think probably the more likely, if, like, historically more likely thing is that the numbers are getting uh, bigger over time and that there will be at some point a new generation of very big companies. And if you can get, you know, one or two of those in your portfolio, it's not necessarily much more risky to be kind of in the private markets as long as it's part of a diversified strategy. It's a good point, and it's really interesting as an investor right now, both it's confusing and exciting at the same time, particularly in technology. And although we've seen some significant pullback, at least in mid-cap tech in the public markets, it does stand to reason many of the companies are really built to last given their growth rates, their gross margins, and many of them will not only eventually grow into their market caps at the peak, but exceed them over some period of time. And so in many ways, it just does seem like the the key really is just to get the right assets, not worry too much about transient trends. And ultimately, things like the private markets will be a long-term part of really delivering alpha for investors. I think that makes a ton of sense. And my thinking on a lot of this too is that at some point, like probably the, the awful thing that happens is that returns for venture capitalists compress. That is not a bad thing to happen, right? Like I think if you look back at 10 years ago or 20 years ago when companies were raising money and selling a quarter of their company for $500,000, like that seems almost unfair. And so the fact that like those kinds of opportunities for VCs aren't available anymore, where you can just go in and write it a half a million dollar check and, and own a quarter of a company, like that's a great thing, actually. I think for the industry, uh, you know, as a whole, I think it's probably why the availability of capital and the non-dilution is probably one of the reasons that you're seeing so many smart people go out and start their own companies. And so if venture returns compress a little bit, but we get a ton of innovation, that's a really good thing for the world. And I don't think anybody's going to cry for me or for anybody else who's in this business or for LPs who are taking home, you know, 20% annually instead of 25% annually uh, on their on their VC portfolios. I wonder if even even that's the case, because in, in the past, when you did get 25% of company for $500,000, there was less acquirers out there, there was less scale, less distribution. And so the risk was actually higher for a lot of these companies. And so you had probably a higher degree of flame outs. I remember in 2014, we wrote a post around the fallen rates from C to Series A. And it was actually quite low. It, it, surprisingly, it was less than 50%. In many cases, the average is close to 30%. 
Now those numbers are nowhere near that. And the graduation rates, in many cases, for some of the top firms are like almost 100%. I remember reading about, you know, the Series A crunch and the Series B crunch, and I've not heard that phrase in, in a few years. Yeah. While returns may compress slightly, if you look at the upper bound outcomes, the funds that do get those companies will continue to perform. The other part of that is just the risk level and investing in technology is much lower than it was. But it'll be a fun ride. I always love pontificating and talking about this with our guests. We, of course, don't know what happens, but um, it's a, it's an exciting time to uh, to be investing and actually just following the market. Yeah, I mean, my big caveat on all of this is that I've been a quote-unquote venture capitalist for you know six or seven months now. So take everything that I say with a grain of salt, but I think hopefully I'm dumb enough to to not be able to see the future. So I'm playing the, the game on the field right now and, and can certainly make a case for everything that you're saying to be true, where you know, technology is just going to be a continuously bigger part uh, of all of our lives that's been true and will continue to be true. And so this is if, if I'm investing anywhere, this is the place that I want to be investing. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So I, I want to shift to maybe a, a final question, which we like to end with, which is you've actually taken on, you've been a writer, you've been a venture capitalist, you've worked at a bank before. What's the best piece of career advice that you've ever received? I think this one actually goes back to why I, uh, you know, did something like writing in the first place. My dad always his his biggest career advice is just don't close doors, and I think that's the biggest one. I think the flip side of the the more positive uh, side of that is retain optionality, and that works up to a point, right? You can't be retaining optionality for your whole entire career. You've done kind of nothing, but particularly early on in your career. Do things that are, you know, like have asymmetric upside and, and keep your optionality open uh, and give yourself an opportunity to find that thing that you particularly like doing and are uniquely suited to do because more and more people are able to find their specific career and actually make a thing out of that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So retain that optionality until you find the thing that you love and then go for it. And there's probably a career there. Yeah. Well, opening those doors sometimes helps you find that zone of genius where passion meets skill. And you've certainly uh, done a great job with the newsletter. Uh, we look forward to reading it every single week. And certainly a great start to the fun. So this has been a lot of fun, Packy. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Packy. To learn more about him and Not Boring Investments, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.